please give it your full attention. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Shebez or Shezvi, Shezib, that she was born, that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too might may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning ended, was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to, ta- to Tem- Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she, she removed her widow's garment and covered her, herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is off the road, on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and that she had not been given him as a wife, to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought, She was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute? who was by the road at Enam. They said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So we returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, 
I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first, but it came about as he drew his hand back, or drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made yourself. So his name was named, so he, he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, to you and to you alone, be glory, honor, and praise. And Lord, to you, we ask for grace and for strength and for help this morning as we consider the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. Help us, Lord. Give us eyes to see, minds that understand, hearts that believe, and feet and hands that obey. Help us to see Christ in this chapter. And help us, Lord, to give to you all of the glory and praise and honor. I decrease that you may increase. We ask again that you be glorified. For the sake of Christ and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, brothers and sisters, we come to a very difficult passage. I think you can tell that just by reading it. When we last considered the book of Genesis, we examined the 37th chapter where we dove into the very dramatic story of Joseph. And it would appear that just as the story of Joseph was getting good, getting juicy, if you will, we are then interrupted by the seemingly out-of-place story of Judah. Some have said that if we were to skip this 38th chapter, that we would not be missing anything. That the story would actually have a better flow if the 38th chapter was not even in the book of Genesis. In fact, because of flow... Some have argued that the story of Judah is actually inserted after the book of Genesis was written. When seeking to, for myself, find resources, many commentators actually skip the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. When trying to find sermons on this particular chapter, many pastors skip the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. Reasoning that there is nothing profitable for us here in this chapter. What is the purpose of Judah's story here? What's the purpose of Judah's story right in the middle of Joseph's story? What did God the Holy Spirit intend to teach us through this story? And how does this story point us to Christ and to God's ultimate plan of redemption? Well, let's begin by answering some of these basic questions. And the first one is this, that Paul tells us 
that all Scripture is inspired by God. And it is all profitable for instruction, for teaching and training in righteousness. Therefore, anything in Scripture that we find is not meaningless. It's all profitable and useful. This passage has therefore been strategically positioned here and intended by God the Holy Spirit to teach us something about Him and about Christ. It will be our task this morning to discover how these things are so. We know that Judah, you've heard the name before, haven't you? Judah. Where, where have you heard the name Judah before? What is the name Judah connected to that you know so well? We know that it is out of the tribe of Judah that the lion will come. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about Judah so far. Think about what kind of man Judah has displayed himself to be thus far in the scriptures. We can say unequivocally that Judah is a wicked man thus far. This man through whom the Messiah will come is a wicked man. I wonder if you remember or if any of you took Pastor Isaiah's advice to listen to or re-listen to the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis as we taught it uh, some months ago. But it was Judah who was the ringleader in convincing his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the one who came up with the idea. And it is as though the scriptures are taking their their camera, its camera, if you will, as it is following and seeing Joseph ride away into slavery through that caravan of Ishmaelites. And as Judah or Joseph uh, disappears into the distance, the camera then refocuses or pans back to the one who is, as it were, responsible for sending Joseph to Egypt, even though God, we know, was over all of this story. As Joseph disappears, the camera re then focuses on Judah. What will become of this wicked man? What will be his fate? Uh, the scriptures will now give us the story of Judah and also the conversion of Judah. This man through whom the Messiah will come. But we would not know of this man's conversion if we did not have this chapter. We would not have this man's testimony if we did not have this chapter. We would not be able to see the persistent grace of God upon those whom he has foreloved before the foundation of the world. If we did not have examples of like Judah, of Judah, like the one that we have this morning here in the 38th chapter. Judah. Judah's life in one respect is much like the life of anyone who has been saved by God. Their lives can be summed up as the irresistible grace of God pursued me, convicted me of sin, gave me faith to believe. And as the old song goes, and now I am happy all the day. In this chapter, we will see the story of a man who has had a wonderful conversion but there is also something else happening in this chapter that I think is, is even more glorious. 
And it is that God is once again showing that his promises shall come to pass, that he will build his church. No matter how hard Satan tries to destroy it. He is showing that his word is surety. That his plan of redemption cannot be thwarted by any of Satan's schemes. This story that we find here in the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis, even though it's one chapter, it's actually a span of 22 years. What we are reading here in the 38th chapter is not a day. It takes place over 22 years or so. The Bible says in verse 1, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. We we must keep this in context or understand that this is the thrust of this chapter. At that time. What time? It was at the time that Joseph went down to Egypt that Judah went down or away from his people. These uh, two peoples that God is using in this story, they are going in uh, parallel but different paths. They are going in parallel but different paths. While Joseph is going down to Egypt, Judah is going down or away from his brothers. Not just his brother, but his father. So then what's Judah's story? What will this departing produce? How will this all end? This morning, with God's help, I'd like to consider with you three points concerning the conversion of Judah. The conversion of Judah. Number one, the promises of God despised. The promises of God despised. This is verses 1 through 11. As we have just said, Judah turns aside from his brothers. And in turning aside from his brothers, he also turns aside from his father. You know his father. His father was Jacob. His father's name was Jacob, but has been changed to Israel. Israel is the one through whom God has promised nations would be built and that the Messiah would ultimately come. He has departed from his brothers. And what has he done? He has visited or he has gone down to a certain Adulamite named Hira. You will remember that the, that this description of going down in the scriptures is not merely a geographical description, but rather it is a a phrase that indicates a spiritual direction. Judah is going down in his spiritual life. He is turning aside from his spiritual life. He's going in the wrong direction in his spiritual life. Judah has departed or turned aside from his father, from his brothers. And if you will, he has turned aside or left the promises of God. In his household, the promises of God were something that I'm sure were stated on a daily, if not weekly basis, Here is what God has promised to our people. And Judah has turned away from those promises. At the end of the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis, the family of Israel, the family that was carrying the promises of God, they are left in ruin. 
after their brother is believed to be mauled by a wild animal, but yet was actually sold into slavery. Judah was the ringleader in that plot. And now he has left his father's household. Judah does not, if you if you notice, he does not leave the promised land of Canaan, though, which is interesting. He does not leave the land. He's still in the promised land, but he's away from the people of God. Isn't that interesting that there are those who claim to be Christians and, and maybe in their heart of hearts they are. But they're just away from the people of God. We want to believe that they truly are believers, that they, they really do belong to Christ. But they go through a season of just departing from the people of God. Departing from where the promises of God are said on a weekly, hopefully daily basis. And here is Judah, still in the land of Canaan. But again, departing from the people of God. He turns from the people of God and turns to a certain Adulamite man whose name was Hira, a Canaanite. Judah leaves the chosen people of God and turns to the rejected people of God. And while he is among these rejected people of God, he starts to become like one of them. He starts to assimilate, to be like one of these uh, rejected peoples of God. He becomes more like a Canaanite and less like an Israelite. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens when we leave the people of God. This is what happens when we uh, walk away from the church. That we soon find ourselves compromising. That we soon find ourselves intermingling with people that we know we have no business intermingling with. And before you know it, we begin to look like them, talk like them. And then the question will ultimately be, are you one of them? He takes a wife from the Canaanites and her name is Shua. We're not going to hear much about Shua except for the fact that she is going to bear children and then die. But she's a Canaanite woman. Abraham and Isaac and even Jacob, but especially Abraham and Isaac, were intent on commanding their sons not to intermarry with the people of the land of Canaan. Don't become, don't intermarry intermarry with them. If you do, they'll lead you astray from God. Christians, this still stands for us today. Those of you who are single, do not intermingle, do not come into covenant, that is, marriage relationship, with an unbeliever. They will lead you astray. They will make your life as a Christian, if you are one, a living nightmare. The Bible says that we are not to be joined with unbelievers. And here is Judah. Uniting himself with an unbeliever. Paul says bad company corrupts good character. The Lord Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You will remember that when Judah or when Esau took wives from the people of the land. What did it do to his parents? It grieved them. It grieved them greatly. And now here is Judah. Going down. Turning away from the promises of God. Taking a wife from among the pagans. 
And what we are seeing in the life of Judah is, is this progressive going down and down and down in his spiritual life. His descent began when his brothers and he did not honor their father when they were working in the field. This is why Joseph went to go check on them. It went even further down when he led his brothers to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. Further down. It went further down when he turned away from the promises of God. Rejecting the promises of God and then turning to the people of the land. Going down further. And then he takes an even further step downward when he intermarries with an unbeliever. There is a down, down, down motif in the story of Judah. You know, just a few weeks ago, I said that a believer can have occasional dips in their walk with Christ, but never a crash. And after I walked away from that sermon, I began to think more and more. I said, I think the scriptures are refuting that statement, actually. How many times have we seen men and women who belong to God sin and sin gravely? Only by the grace of God to be returned to God. Only to be picked up by the grace of Almighty God and put back on their feet. Judah is in the midst of a crash. There's carnage all around him. And it's about to get even worse. Why? Because he and Shua have three children. When we come to verse 6, we see that Judah has found a wife for his eldest son, Ur. And praise be to God that the Lord led Judah to find this woman, Tamar. She is a Canaanite. She is from among the pagan peoples. And yet God providentially uses Judah to pick out of the pagans this woman named Tamar. Now, Tamar is... A wonderful woman as we shall see. But she is nevertheless still a pagan and still a sinner. And Judah picks Tamar for his son Ur. E-R. If you know anything of the Hebrew. Ur spelled backwards means evil. We don't know much about Tamar from these passages other than she's a Canaanite. We'll see more about her character. But she's been joined to an evil man. How do we know that Ur was an evil man? Well, because the Bible tells us so. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. What kind of evil had Ur been involved in that the Bible says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord? Not not only was he evil, but the Bible says that the Lord put him to death because of his sinfulness, because of his wickedness. Well... As you know, first and foremost, Ur was a sinful man because of the sin of Adam. We are all sinful people because of the sin of Adam. Each of us have fallen in Adam's first transgression. Uh, As we've just learned from our catechism, it was Adam's lack of conformity to the law of God that caused all of his posterity, all of us, to fall with him into his sin. And that sin is in a state of sin, yes, and misery. We've all become corrupt in our nature. We've all lost communion with God. Being worthy of punishment. This was the sin of Ur, first and foremost, founded in Adam. But Ur did not turn away from that sin. Ur remained in that sin and went deeper into that sin. 
And this, there's a sad reality to the sinfulness, the wickedness of Ur. Here's the, the sad fact about Ur's wickedness. Here it is. It's that his father knew the gospel. This is the reality, the sad, uh, depressing reality of Ur's wickedness is that he is the son of a man who knew the gospel. The son of a man who had the promises of God taught to him from infancy, at least from childhood. And yet this man who has possessed the gospel, who knows the gospel, has failed to raise his children in the fear and love of God, passing on that gospel promise to them. Through their family would come one who would destroy the works of Satan. And yet one of Judah's children is a child of Satan. Through the seed of Judah, nations would be blessed. And yet here is one who lived so wickedly, being used by Satan even, that he would try to curse that seed that would be born. Uh, This seed that would come from Judah would take his people to an eternal land, a place where they would have peace with God through faith in this seed. Judah knew these promises. Abraham passed them on to Isaac. Isaac passed them on to Jacob. Jacob, I'm sure, did not fail to teach these things to his children. Judah knew the gospel. But Judah abandoned the promises of God that were told to him by his father. We we were told in the very first verses, he turns aside from them. He, He goes his own way. And the tragedy is in that in Judah turning aside from the promises of God, he raises children who turn aside or turn away from the promises of God. May I have you all men look at me, women as well. What kind of children are you raising? Are you raising children who are turning to the promises of God or turning away from the promises of God? Are you teaching them to them? Judah is raising children who are seen as evil in the sight of God. And I I have to say as a father that Judah is somewhat responsible for this. Not entirely, but he is somewhat responsible for his rearing of this, of these children in this wicked way. Ur was so wicked in the sight of God that God puts him to death. May I say to you this, here's a fun note for you to write down, or at least a sad one. Nowhere in all of the book of Genesis does God put one specific singular person to death because of their sin. Yes, he uh, judges the world through the flood. He judges Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, but never has God's uh, justice and judgment turned toward one specific person because of their sinfulness in the book of Genesis until we see this man err. What kind of sinner was this man? Oh, we don't see this kind of specific judgment until we come to his brother. How wicked were these men? God does not judge anyone individually like this in the book of Genesis, killing an individual person because of sinfulness, until we come to his brother. 
who was also killed because of his sinfulness by God. Now we have a dilemma. When Ur is put to death, Tamar has no children. Now this is, this is important. We're coming to the 38th chapter and there seems to be this, this constant dilemma. Tamar has no kids. So what? But throughout the chapter, there's a constant, Tamar needs children. Tamar needs children. Why does Tamar need children? Well, those who are reading the book of Genesis would know why Tamar needs children. When they come to Israel's prophecy in the later chapters of the book of Genesis, they know who Judah is. But during this chapter, why does she need a child so bad? Why is she constantly being given to another man so that she can bear a child? There's a reason for it. It was the custom of those in the East that if the husband of a woman died, she would be given to her brother, his brother. And the children that they would bear would be considered as that brother who died's children. Judah has a second son. Name is Onan. And he calls Onan to take his responsibility to lay with his brother's sister or brother's wife so that his brother, the one who died, may have children. Onan does this, but doesn't do it. He takes advantage of the opportunity to lay with his brother's wife, but he interrupts their consummation so that they would not have any children. Onan does not want a child with Tamar because, as the Bible says, it will not be his child. It would be his brother's child. But not only that, Onan wants nothing to do with this father's command because this would also impact his own inheritance. If the inheritance needs to be split up by another child, then he gets less of the pie. So he'll have nothing to do with giving Tamar a wife, or a, a child. He does not uh, completely consummate with Tamar. He acts wickedly before the Lord. He mistreats her for his own desires and denies her a child in the process. And so the Lord sees this as wickedness and takes his life as well. Two sons of Judah killed by the Lord for their wickedness. Now, you must understand that Judah's not reading the book of Genesis to understand what's going on. He's in the midst of it. All he knows is that his two sons have been joined to this one woman. And each time they are with her, they die. Something is up with this woman, Judah may think. Judah turns away from the promises of God, turns away or his children from the promises of God. And now he has this last son, Shelah. What will he do in his obligation to give him to her? Brothers and sisters, before I move on to that point, may I just urge you to consider the fact that you do not know what kind of impact your discipling of your children and your raising them in the fear and love of God will have upon generations to come. That if you raise your children to love God and to love His law, then Lord willing, you will raise children who will also raise children that love God and love His law. And it could all be because of the way in which you have obeyed God to lead your children in the right path. So may I encourage you as I move further on into this sermon 
do not forsake or turn away from the promises of God. Judah has one more son. He's obligated to give him to Tamar. But Shelah is still young, not ready for marriage. So here's what Judah tells Tamar in verse 11. Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So he's saying to her, go stay with your father. When Shelah is older, I'll have you to marry and you can produce a child with him. But here's what he was actually thinking. Verse 11. For he thought, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. She goes home. And as time passes, we find that Tamar realizes that Sheila has grown up, verse 14. But she, he has not been given to Tamar. Well, there's something alarming that's taking place here. She's without a child. She's lost two husbands. And now this third one will not be given to her. All of this because Judah has forsaken the promises of God. Number two, the promises of God preserved. This is verses 12 through 26. Uh, Verse 12 begins with this statement, after a considerable time. This again was a matter of years. So again, we're reading this entire chapter, but what's really taking place is a matter of years. It was so long that we learn the wife of Judah has even passed away. Judah's wife has even passed away, which means that they were probably advanced, well advanced in age. But also Judah's son, the one who was supposed to be given to Tamar, he has grown up and he has still not been given to to Tamar. Again, Judah is afraid that his third son may die, that, that he is looking at Tamar as if she's a cursed woman. And so Tamar desperate to preserve the line of her husband and the line of Judah, she devises a wicked plan. Let's say that period. She devises a wicked, sinful plan to preserve her family line. Here's what she's told. She's given information that her father, father-in-law Judah, is heading up to have his sheep sheared. This was a a time that men would gather. Imagine all of these shepherds gathering during a specific time. And they would all together uh, go and shear their sheep. But it would also be a time of wickedness. Where a lot of men are gathered. Also women who are prostitutes would also gather. Knowing that men would be alone. And that they would be probably looking for some kind of fulfillment sexually and so Tamar hears that her father-in-law is heading toward the sheep shearing festival if you will and she knows something about the character of her father-in-law that would cause her to say I'll dress up like a prostitute and lure him in now what did she know about him that she knew this plan would work (laughs) 